From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Orange and Blue took a rare step back from the action in week one, watching the rest of the college football world duke it out over the course of a Saturday filled with dubs, dominations, and a few disasters. Now ready to officially open the swamp for the 2019 season, the Gators are looking for marked improvement across the board when they host UT Martin on Saturday night. On this week's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry discussed the impact Hurricane Dorian had on UF, what they learned after watching week one, Kirk Herbstreet's critical comments about Felipe Franks, a breakout start for transfer John Greenard, the surprising cuts of former Gators in the NFL, the fitting tribute plan for the late Mr. Two-Bits George Edmondson, and the scariest movies they've ever seen in the PAT. Then, wide receiver Josh Hammond stops by to chat about approaching the end of his career, his favorite memories on and off the field, and his expectations for this year's offense. But first, people across the state of Florida spent much of the week preparing for the potential threat of Hurricane Dorian, and that certainly included the Gators. So to open this week's roundtable, Scott and Chris discussed the unusual circumstances surrounding the first home game week. There's been no classes, obviously, up through Wednesday this week. Uh, in the end, I don't think Gainesville was impacted greatly by it, and the team did get back together and practice Monday and Tuesday, and they were able to get into their game week preparations for UT Martin without really uh, much of a hiccup in terms of uh, anything related to Hurricane Dorian. I think the most unusual part, really, was just having the week off after the opening game against Miami. It was something they knew, you know, for months, but they still go through it. And, you know, it was weird last week, the Dan Mullen, after Wednesday's practice, he, he basically told the coaches and players to get lost. And, you know, you got four days to go unwind and take a break. You know, we had to cut our summers a little bit shorter because that game was scheduled so early. And now you get a little time away. And, uh, you know, a lot of them did that. I talked to Kyrie Campbell, the defensive tackle, went home to Virginia for his brother's birthday. Van Jefferson drew, drove all the way to Tennessee to visit his family. Felipe Frank said he went to Tennessee today. Uh, some guys uh, stayed home, laid by the pool, watched football like I did. So, you know, it, it, all guys handled the off days different. But that was – probably the most unusual part of anything the team has experienced over the last several days. And now it feels like, just from talking to some of the guys, it feels like now the season's almost starting in some ways because after UT Martin, I mean, starting with UT Martin, it's a stretch of seven games and seven weeks right into the SEC after UT Martin. So it feels like a normal season is here. And they get to do it with the big win against Miami already uh, on the resume. So it's it's been a Interesting start, to say the least, for the Gators. Let's see now. How did Hurricane Dorian impact the Gators? Well, they didn't have to go to class uh, <laughs> Tuesday or Wednesday. So if you were a student once, I was a student once, Scott was a student once. Um, who wouldn't like that uh, equation? Um, I don't really think it impacted them a whole lot. Uh, we go back to what you talked about having the, having the opening weekend, uh, or excuse me, week one to sit around and, like Scott said, watch football. You know, I think that was probably a good thing, especially if they were tuned in the t- into the Tennessee Georgia State game. Um, oh, so, uh, I mean, if there wasn't any kind of reminder heading into a game against a UT Martin, which I'm sure a lot of people uh, have never heard of, um, certainly I had to look up some stuff about UT Martin. But um, if they needed a reminder about a banana peel that you could slip on, certainly the uh, the volunteers gave them that. I, again, I, I think we talked about this last week and just said, excuse me, after this week, I think there would be a return to normalcy. Um, uh, obviously it wasn't normal at all really this week with class being canceled and whatever, but they stuck to a pretty, uh, uh, normal, uh, as far as football routine in terms of being at their practices and their meetings and what have you. And now, like Scott said, you know, seven games in seven weeks, and this will feel more like that opening week because let's face it over the past, however many years, three, almost three decades, 
Florida's opened the season with a uh, what people would call a cupcake opponent, and I'm sure UT uh, Martin being a being one of these uh, uh, you know Division One AA uh, FCS teams would fit into that mold. And it's an excellent tune-up game. Having said that, the Gators have a bunch of stuff uh, on tape already from that Miami game, which they were able to review and correct. And I'm sure that's what they've spent the bulk of uh, this week doing in their time. It was hard to kind of break down what we saw against Miami in the sense that there wasn't a lot of context for it because of week zero and no one else was playing. So I'm curious for you guys, after you sat around like, you know, like I did, like I'm sure most people listening to this show did, and you watched what happened throughout week one in the rest of the country, did your opinions change at all of what you saw in the Florida-Miami game? Did it in any way color your perspective as you reflected back on that moving forward? My my perspective was fine. I think Scott's perspective was fine. It's the Gator fan base that maybe needed a, some kind of a perspective uh, adjustment. I mean, Clemson's the best team in the country. Trevor Lawrence, if he could come out this year, would be the number one player in the draft. He didn't have a very good game against Georgia Tech. And uh, my perception of Trevor Lawrence hasn't changed. I still think he's pretty good. Uh, I, and I, and uh, Notre Dame uh, Monday night uh, against Louisville. Their quarterback struggled too. Has the perception changed of, of Notre Dame? So I think being um, kind of the only game in town that night uh, in my the, the Miami-Florida game in Orlando um, just made it easier for people to uh, jump to conclusions that may or may not be there. Might they be uh, accurate conclusions? Sure. I'm more along the lines of where you, you got to get it. It was, it was too small of a sample size to to jump to some things and having started so soon, I think having a full slate of games maybe brought some people back to reality, but I guess, uh, I guess we won't know that until we start scanning Twitter a little more this weekend after the, uh, after the Florida YouTube Martin game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think like Chris said, it's just a reminder for others maybe to get a little glimpse of, Hey, guess what? Opening week is not always pretty. It wasn't the prettiest for the Gators or Miami. Or Tennessee. He certainly wasn't pretty for Tennessee. Uh, wasn't pretty for uh, Missouri. Wasn't pretty for Ole Miss. So Florida State. There were, yeah, there were a lot of teams who suffered worse fates than the Gators with a sloppy win in week one. None being more so than Miami, as we talked last week. You know, they would much have rather won that game than lost. But, like again, that's the way it works. Uh, will the Gators look to be a little more crisp? more efficient and some things they do against an overmatched team like UT Martin. Certainly if they don't win by 50, is it a disappointment? No, I mean, UT Martin, they'll, they'll come down they'll try to play. You just don't know, but they would certainly like to go out there and maybe put that game away early and get some younger guys in the lineup. I'm sure that's ultimately what Dan Mullen would like to see happen on Saturday and then move on from there. Kirk Herbstreet brought up during college game day, seemingly out of nowhere. He's talking about Georgia and then just kind of pivoted and started talking about Felipe Franks and sort of went on. It was about a, a, a 60 second uh, diatribe about all the reasons that Franks needs to be more mature and his concerns about him as the right leader for the Gators, et cetera. So obviously that got social media going. People were talking a lot about that. And you know, that stuff ultimately gets back to, to the top anyway. And I know Felipe Franks spoke to me this week. Dan Mullen spoke to me this week. Uh, what sense of any did you guys get about some of that talk about Felipe that's out there and how it's affecting him or the way the Gators feel about him? I mean, it, just from those guys talking, there was no sense of it all. I mean, and Felipe Franks, as we've talked on this show before, I think last week, he's not for everybody. I think Felipe Franks likes the fact he's not for everybody. He was asked today at the press conference specifically if he handles that type of criticism better now than a year ago. And he said he thinks he does. But most importantly, he said that it's not just not really important. And I think he said that in the past and I didn't really believe him. But I, I mean, he's getting to a point now where, you know, I think he's getting better at it. But I also think there's a part of his competitive psyche that that he kind of thrives off that. I mean, it's an old cliche in sports that, you know, the old chip on the shoulder. Some guys have it. Some guys need it. I'm starting to believe after watching Felipe more and more, I think he kind of thrives in that. You know, I don't know if it's always been that case for him because he probably didn't face much scrutiny in high school, obviously. But he certainly has in his three years as Florida starter. And uh, and he's at he's at the point in his career now where Florida is suddenly at least in the national conversation again, and he's the best quarterback the Gators have had at least production wise 
since number 15, Tim Tebow. So it's only natural that he's going to be the focal point of a lot of media and fans' uh, engagement with the Gators. And quite frankly, I think it's good because Florida's had a pretty long stretch of not having really marquee name players. And I didn't peg Felipe Franks being maybe the, the guy who's most like that since Tim Tebow, but he's certainly right there. And he's at the game's most important position. So I just think it's something that we might as well get used to. You know, that's just the way people react to him. And him and Dan Mullen, I think Dan Mullen obviously doesn't want that to impact him much. I think Felipe's getting better at not letting certain things impact him. But also, I think, truth be told, I think he likes some of it. Scott said that Felipe Franks is not for everybody. I I kind of like to think that about myself. I'm not for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I kind of like it, too. A lot of my Twitter followers will agree with me, I guarantee <laughs> But let's go back to what your, your original point, Adam, was, 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 about, was about Kirk Herbstreet, okay? I would have liked to have known what Kirk Herbstreet said two years ago when Baker Mayfield uh, planted a flag and went right up the backside of his alma mater by planting a flag at the at midfield of, at the shoe, mm-hmm. okay? Um, that was such a horrible thing that he won the Heisman Trophy that year. Um, what, what did Kirk Herbstreet say about Johnny Manziel's antics? I mean, mm-hmm. for all I know, he said, he said stuff about it. Okay. You know, those guys perform. Right. And I think, I think to his point, if it certainly, if he did say something, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't recall. And I, and I, I think Kirk Herbstreet is, is very, very good at his job. I'm not criticizing him in any way. I'm just saying to his point, he's probably saying Franks might make things a lot easier on himself if he like reined it in a little bit emotionally, but um, he is who he is, and and I think last year when he was playing at his best, it was that confidence and that swagger that that allowed him to do that. And you know, you have to. I think he has to get back to being that guy again. Mm. And if priming and preening and doing stuff like that is and putting footballs in the stands gets him there, I'm sure Dan Mullen will accept that without any questions. Mm. In any case, moving on to the the team on the whole, right? This is a big week for cleaning things up, and that's been a lot of the talk. I know Dan Mullen made some comments about counting the number of tackles they missed, maybe half the yards they gave up coming after contact, after missed tackles. Uh, Based on what you guys have heard in the last 10 days leading up to Saturday's opener in the Swamp, what are your expectations for where Florida will make the most improvements that people will be able to see? In the box score. Um, I think they're, it's going to be a staff game. I think, quite frankly, the Gators could use one of those. I mean, you only rush, you only average 1.8 yards a carry. They, they need to run the ball against uh, UT Martin, okay? They need to be able to pass block better than they did against Miami. And this is just to execute technique and, and stuff that they're told to do every day in practice. Um, this is a kind of opponent they'll have the ability to do that. Now, you got to go in with the right mindset, thinking, you know, thing, weird things can happen. Um, but I mean, you know, all the all the stuff that added up on the negative side from that game. I just mentioned the rushing yards. Uh, I mentioned the, the pass pro. Um, you you got to throw into that also um, the penalties. Um, you have to throw into that also the missed tackles. You know, all that stuff can be cleaned up. It's not going to be a be all end all cure all, but it'll certainly be something to build on. And it'd be a, a glorified kind of live scrimmage. And I'm sure that the coaches, coaches are never going to tell their, their, their teams that. So, although Steve Spurrier probably would in a lot of ways. He'd say, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to clobber a team like Akron is what he would say uh, uh, before a game like that. But what they need to do is just be on point in, in a lot of ways just across the board and come out of there with a stat sheet that says, you know, uh, 580 yards, 600 yards with uh, some good numbers for Felipe Franks, a uh, 140-yard day rushing for LaMichael P. Ryan or some kind of 250-yard rushing day for the offense and a nice number on the defensive side in terms of you know, tackling and few points, of course, put up uh, by the Skyhawks. That's right, the, the UT Martin Skyhawks. Southern yeah, sure. Conference, if I'm not mistaken, but oh, everything Chris said right there, I totally uh, on point with that and you know, if you're asking specifically, if I if I had to say, all right, Scott, what, what's one thing you're going to see different from the Gators this game compared to the Miami game that's going to be very tangible, at least triple, quadruple, or whatever's above quadruple their rushing yardage. I mean, they had 27 rushes for, what, 52 yards against Miami. You know, everything, you know, Michael P. Ryan, they like to get him 100 yards. They like to get Malik Davis back into the rotation to get re- help him gain some confidence after that fumble and disappearance against Miami. 
get uh, Damian Pierce some carries, probably get Kadarius Tony some Wildcat looks. So I would expect them to really try to to get that run game and just dominate the game that way and, and let Felipe play off of that and maybe uh, get those younger quarterbacks into the game. One of the older guys we had a chance to see in, in week zero was John Greenard, and he obviously impressed, was named SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week. So I'm curious if you guys can just talk about the way that he has slid into a role that was really needed. Florida lost a lot of leadership on that defensive line and what he's been able to do to come in, immediately mesh, and obviously be a, an, an important contributor so far. Well, he, Greener, he came in as an experienced guy. Anytime you get a fifth-year graduate transfer like he was, you don't bring those guys in unless you're probably expecting them to make an impact right away. Uh, you know, with his history at Louisville with Todd Grantham, the Gators needed somebody to replace Ja'Kai Polite at that edge rusher position that they call Buck. Well, John Greenyard was the guy they brought in to do it. Greenyard goes out and wins SEC player of the week in his first week, and Ja'Kai Polite gets cut. So their storylines certainly intertwined a lot over the last few days, and, and not in a good way for Ja'Kai Polite, obviously, but for the Gators and John Greenyard, I don't think you'd ask for much of a better start. And you know, just from everything that you were hearing about him from the coaches and his teammates, even going back to preseason camp when they first started really getting a look at him, uh, you could tell that he had all the tools there to make an impact if he stayed healthy. And so far, so good. Well, Scott, you mentioned one side of that coin is uh, someone new like Greener just filling a hole. And the one that left the void was Ja'Kai Polite, who became a story over the weekend, as did Tease Tabor, as two very high-profile recent Gators who were cut. And, you know, Tabor, uh, you'll hear in a few minutes my interview with Josh Hammond, where he said Tabor is the, basically the, the best defender he's ever had to face in practice. And you think about all of the great corners and defensive backs that have played for the Gators over the last four or five years. So putting that in context, I mean, how surprised were you guys to hear about those? And, and how do you explain to players who are so explosive and so dominant in college that don't seem to be doing it at, at the next level? It's easy to explain because when you're talking about the NFL, you're talking about a different level. And as far as Ja'Kai Polite, I mean, he helped torpedo himself. Um, we heard about it at the Combine. With the, He didn't interview well. He was late. Um, obviously, when he, he gets to the Jets, um, he's late for meetings there and was got some fines for that. Uh, Dan Mullen said this week when he was asked Ja'Kai Polite, he goes, what did he get fined for? He said, late for me. He goes, yeah, well, he was, he was late for some things for us, too. Um, now, having said that, is it a surprise that uh, a team drafts a guy in the third round and cuts him uh, just you know a few months later? That's not normal. And so uh, they must have just totally not liked what they saw from the kid. And hopefully that's a message to him. Hopefully uh, uh, it's an eye-opener. It's, it's some kind of a, an awakening for him that you know he has to change some things. He's, he's got a second chance being picked up, uh, signed to the practice squad of the Seattle Seahawks. Maybe Pete Carroll and those guys can uh, shake some life into him, but um, it's also something that maybe um, I think Dan Mullen said it was a you know a, a learning moment for not only Kai Polite but maybe for some of his teammates uh, that are in the Florida locker room right now. You know, do your stuff, do it right, and uh, good things will happen to you as opposed to uh, bad things happening. Because certainly uh, Kai Polite last December. No one was blocking him. Sack man. He's I mean he's he was in like uh, all those guys mocked your ass first round and shoop, started going down once all the uh, once all the pre-draft stuff started happening. So uh, hopefully a light bulb goes off in that kid's head. And like Mullen said, hopefully it's something that uh, his former teammates can can see and and be reminded of. Yeah, I mean Chris touched on all of this, the talking points there with polite. I'm I'm surprised like everybody else was, but then again I'm not surprised considering. The red flags have been there for a few months now. I think from inside Florida's offices, I remember after the bowl game, you know, it, there were some eyebrows raised when during the draft process. A lot of those guys were still around working out here with the resources that Florida offers. And of course, polite, he was nowhere to be seen and kind of disappeared and did his own thing. And, uh, you know, it unfortunately hasn't worked out for him. You hope he can get it together. Uh, we'll see how that goes. As far as Tease Tabor and some of the other defensive backs uh, who have struggled in the NFL for Florida in recent years, Vernon Hargraves is another guy. He was rumored to even maybe be facing the chopping block by the Bucks, but he made the roster. 
Uh, I was not really uh, too surprised. I just look at what had Tease Tabor done in his first couple of years in the league. And if you look at the lines, uh, Jared Davis has been an immediate impact player there. Uh, Tabor, who obviously got a lot more pub, I think, in college to some degree uh, than even Jared did. Uh, he, he was quiet. And, you know, I think uh, for him, you go back to the NFL Combine a couple of years ago when he was there, those eyebrows raised at his slow time in the 40. And sometimes you wonder how much to put into those kind of things at the Combine where everything's based on strictly just numbers from a, a physical standpoint, how fast you are in a 40, how high you can jump. How does that translate to football? I think speed for an NFL defensive back, obviously, it translates uh, to a great magnitude. And I think that's what uh, did tease Tabor in. And, you know, there's always a team that may, may give him another shot and maybe he can find a role and carve out a spot for him. But, uh, you know, it has been tough going for some of those guys. Uh, the best of the bunch, when you look at those great defensive backs that we've seen play for the Gators, to me, Keanu Neal's been the best one. Of course, he's coming off a season-ending knee injury. Uh, the Falcons are hoping to get him back. But Marcus May's been pretty good. Yeah, Marcus yeah. has been pretty good. He's been hurt yep. this spring. Brian Poole, who's now with the Jets, has yep. been pretty good. Uh, I know Duke Dawson, the, the Patriots gave up on him after using a second-round pick on him. Uh, so it, it is kind of a mixed bag. There's going to be a, a bittersweet moment before the game starts, which will be during the honorary Mr. Two Bits segment, which is going to be actually uh, a large contingent of George Evanson's family. Uh, he passed away late this summer, which was a really sad across Gator Nation to hear that. Uh, Chris, I know you did a story on that. Talk to the family. Um, can you just talk about what they had to say about his legacy and, and what Mr. Two Bits means to the Gators? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this one to Scott and I'll come back and add to it because Scott was actually at the memorial service. What they call it? A celebration of life, Scott in Tampa. Yeah. Um, and that was Steve Spurrier was there. Scott Strickland was there. Uh, Jeremy Foley was there. It was a, a gathering of Gators down there in South Tampa. And obviously there was a lot more of a, of a salute to him. Wasn't it Scott? Yeah, it was really nice to be down in Tampa at Palma Sierra country club where, Mr. Edmondson was a member, I think his wife told me, for over 50-some years. Wow. A very good golfer. Uh, his father was a uh, professional golfer in the Tampa area when he was younger, and uh, Edmondson took up the game, obviously, as a man, too. But uh, more importantly, since 1949, he's been known as Mr. Tubitz in Gator Nation. And you could tell that the family, they were sad that, obviously, he passed away at 96 years old, but they also were very thankful that they had him for so long and that he made such an impact, uh, not only in their lives, but really in a, in the Florida Gators lore. I mean, he's, he's right there with Steve Spurrier, Tim Tebow and Emmett Smith. I mean, Mr. Two Bits. I mean, he's, that's how prominent he is. He's obviously been involved for what, 60 some years now. It's amazing to uh, have any connection, anything that long in the, so his family, uh, again, they were, it was a very nice ceremony down there. His wife, his grandsons, his great grandsons, uh, you know, they, they spoke to the crowd, at least the, a couple of the grandsons did and his wife and Steve Spurrier spoke and, you know, Spurrier, I think said it best. And Chris wrote about this. I mean, there's never going to be another Mr. Two Bits. And Chris, you might have more to add. Yeah. Just to, to my point, I mean, uh, uh, the first home game since the passing of, of George Edmondson. What better way to uh, salute him and, and his legacy than to trot out his three grandsons and five great-grandchildren in the garb and let them lead the cheer in the 2019 season opener? That's what's going to happen Saturday. All of them are very excited. I spoke to all three of the grandsons, uh, Chris King, Kevin King, and Robert Edmondson are, are their names. Um, and Robert told me he, he wants it to be um, – uh, on point with his outfit he, all the way down to the, you know, a lot of these uh, celebrity two bits the last few years have just gone with the khaki pants. He goes, now got to have seersucker, <laughs> the white saddle buck shoes, found them all on Amazon. He said it wasn't easy, but he's, he, he's going to be decked out to the two bits nines as it were. And uh, it'll be a, obviously a nice moment for that family. The, his widow Jane will be down there and a, a bunch of other probably member members of the family. 
And when you think about some of the people who have been uh, paraded out there uh, to do that two bitch cheer, um, whether it's Spurrier or Collinsworth or Caleb Dressel or uh, Dara Torres or Bridget Sloan, um, it's that's a really cool kind of thing. I think the UAA came up with in 2013 when they put Eric Red out there to to be the first celebrity, Mr. Two Bits. And um, in in June, I believe ESPN r- ranked its 25 best traditions in college football. And Mr. Two Bits cheer came in at number eight. So um, one last one with that true Edmondson blood leading the cheer before the Tennessee Martin game. I think that'll there'll be a video uh, tribute to him also. Uh, obviously, that'll be a very cool moment, um, not just for the Edmondson family, but for all of Florida and all the people that enjoyed Mr. Two Bits cheers uh, over the decades and decades and decades. One more final little cool tidbit is Adam at the uh, – Celebration of Life event that I did go to. I asked uh, his wife about his final resting spot, and she said, "Well, you know what he wanted to be buried in, right?" And of course, you, we can all guess that, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he was buried in his that exact uh, uniform that he has on two bits. So wow, <laughs> shows, you, shows you how much that role meant to him. Obviously, for him to request that, he was serious about it. And if you look at all my in my story that I wrote about it this week, Adam, there's a video. It's like a two and a half minute video it talks about him. It talks about the genesis of it all. And first Gatorade he went to, the team was terrible. And he listened to the booing and booing. He goes, I'm never going to boo uh, these kids. I'm never going to boo these kids. I'm going to, I'm going to cheer them on no matter what. And uh, that's kind of how it started as uh, upbeat two bits, four bits for, for some bad football teams. He just kept on doing it, kept on doing it, and saw and went from the lows, the highest of times. This last two bits cheer, uh, uh, incidentally, was in i believe it was 2008 the senior day of 2008 against his alma mater the citadel that's the last time he did his cheer on the field and as you noted it's his alma mater as a lot of people don't know uh he did not go to florida and most no. of his family did not go to florida either in fact uh, robert the grants the youngest grandson is the only uh member of the entire edmondson family that has a degree from uh, the University of Florida. He has a he has an undergraduate degree and a master's degree. Huh. Wild. And his wife's from Florida State. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always trying to figure it out that when I hear that. How did the connection to UF even start? I think he went there to the first Gator game with a friend of his. Just kind of took a liking to the whole thing. Having settled in Florida. You got to remember this. He moved to Tampa when he was just a toddler. His family did from the uh, Atlanta area. And you got to remember when he started doing this, Adam, there was no professional sports in Florida. I mean, the Florida right. Gators were kind of the biggest thing in sports in Florida. So it was a big deal to come to a Florida Gators game. And obviously, uh, he made it a bigger deal in his own way. That's a really good point. That context is, uh, you know, is definitely helpful to figure that out. As we transition from that to our PAT, Mr. Tubitz, arguably the greatest sports fan, most legendary sports fan that ever lived. Uh, I'm not a fan of scary movies. I don't know if you guys are either, but that's the talk of the week because It Chapter 2 comes out. It's going to be a $100 million blockbuster. Uh, I'm even going to see it because I was tricked into seeing It Chapter 1, which for what it's worth is the scariest movie I've ever seen. And if that sounds soft to you, it's because I don't watch many scary movies. But it made me think, it's a question I'm asking everybody this week. I asked Josh Hammond this question, which you'll hear in a few minutes. Uh, what's the scariest thing you've ever seen? It could be a movie, a TV show. Maybe there was even a book that just spooked you to death. I want to know what uh, what spine-tingling answers that uh, that generates from you guys. First of all, there, you know, just don't think of remakes when I bring up this. In 1976, I saw the original movie, The Omen. Hmm. And... I just absolutely freaked out about it because I thought it was not only scary as hell, but I thought the story, the screenplay was absolutely brilliant. It had Gregory Peck in it, and he's obviously one of the greatest actors of all time. But the, the notion that there was a plot to bring back uh, uh, Satan's son and put him in politics and all this stuff, and the way it, it was all built up and the 666, and you're like, holy God. And, and, and it was, it, to, to me, because uh, the Exorcist had come out like I want to say five years earlier, that maybe three years earlier than that. I thought this one was much, much scarier than that. And back then they used to have actually Jaws was the first movie to do this. 
was the first one to put disclaimers up and say maybe too intense for younger children. Oh wow! And th- this one was not only maybe too intense for younger children, but it was almost freaking too intense for me. <laughs> and I just really, really violent uh, for especially at that time uh, for forty years ago. And uh, but uh, at the same time, a, a magnificent and brilliant film. If you all want to see it. Don't look at the the remake from five years ago with Liv Schreiber, I think, was in that, I believe. Go back and see the original uh, uh, the original Omen from 1976 with Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. What was the movie about 20 years ago where they were out in the woods? And Blair Witch Project. Like- Blair Witch Project, yeah, which they yeah. remade also. So, you know, again, I saw, I've seen some of the scary movies that you guys have mentioned. I haven't seen some. I've never been a big horror film yeah i think mostly because i remember when i was a kid friday the 13th was a the big franchise at the time and i don't know i remember watching one and just not thinking it was that scary or almost funny in some way because it was so bad but then as i got older i just drifted away from that genre but i remember i'll never forget this it was was, i was walking through the mall in tampa the uh, citrus park mall one afternoon with a buddy of mine and we were just hanging out and we saw this poster for the Blair Witch Project, which, to be honest with you, I knew nothing about. He's like, hey, man, let's blow the afternoon. Let's go to this movie. And I'm like, okay, whatever. It's, I think it's a <laughs> Sunday afternoon. I had nothing to do. I have no idea why we were even at the mall. So we end up going, we end up going into the movie theater. and not in, I hadn't read a word about this. I hadn't seen a commercial. So I'm sitting there watching this and... I mean, I'm thinking it's real, man. I mean, that was as mm. close as I got ever to being tricked in a in a movie. <laughs> so, you know, if that was real, that's pretty scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking it was more of a authentic documentary type movie instead of what it actually was. So I, I but I, I don't know if there's anything that could quite get me like that one did because that was a just a confluence of perfect events that set up that afternoon against me. Hmm. And I don't know if it still holds this record, but for a really long time, it was the most profitable movie ever made because it only cost, I think, somewhere in five figures. It was like sixty or $70,000 and it made mm-hmm. hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars worldwide. So I never well, saw it. I don't think I will see it. I may not even survive It Chapter wait, 2 this weekend. Wait, you've never seen it? Blair Witch Project? No, I've not seen it. Wait, I thought you were a movie buff. Have you have you not seen it? I'm a movie buff. I'm not a I'm not a horror movie buff. They're two different things. Okay. Horror horror is uh, a whole separate genre. The horror crowd will go see anything they put out that's got a slasher thing tied to it. I need I need next level horror movies. It's got to be Us or Get Out or It. It's got to be operating at a higher level for me to be interested. Maybe too intense for older children like Adam. Exactly. Despite Chris's objections to it, I stand by my statement. I also I also stand by the work that you guys are going to do this week on FloridaGators.com, which we encourage people to check out. Also, you can follow them on Twitter at GatorScott, at GatorsChris. They've got the home opener covered for you from all angles. And uh, hopefully next week we're talking about, as you said before, a party in the box score. Lots of good numbers to talk about before we go into SEC season. So, guys, thank you so much as always, and uh, enjoy the opener. Well, thanks, Adam. And I think you just gave us our headline if the Gators do rack up a party in the box score. I like that. There you go. Party in the box score. I think I may go watch Psycho right now. The Gators have arguably their most talented wide receiver room in a decade, with dynamic playmakers both young and old ready to make plays in the biggest moments. One of the leaders of that group is Josh Hammond, who started his senior season with a bang by snagging a bomb from Franks that helped seal the win over Miami. We spoke to Josh about his time in Gainesville and what goals he still hopes to achieve before it's all over, but began by asking the South Florida native about the topsy-turvy week that's left much of the eastern seaboard in turmoil. When we have these issues, you know, our president of the school, he does a pretty good job of uh, letting school be out. So we've been off. Uh, we haven't had school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just to allow, you know, just normal students that can go home, uh, be able to go home and be with their families for a situation like this. And uh, as far as us, uh, you know, Coach Mullen does a good job and our position coaches do a good job of reaching out to the guys who are going to be affected by the storm or whatever. And, uh, you know, just making sure they're OK, even if they have to drive up you know being able to provide them shelter or in somewhere to stay just because the storm won't hit us as bad as it'll hit you know the coast 
Mm-hmm. So um, just being able to provide that shelter for anybody who may need it or may want it, uh, that's definitely an option as well. So uh, being a player, you know, just to know that they would be willing to provide that for us, uh, you know, just makes us feel more comfortable, more safe about the situation and uh, just allows us to focus on the things we have to focus on in regards to football. You know, given where you're from on the <laughs> East Coast down south, how much has your family personally been affected by this? Uh, they haven't been affected much. It kind of curved and missed like South Florida, like mm-hmm. almost kind of completed. I mean, they got like some storm weather, but being from down there, that's like almost every day. So right. they're pretty fine. <laughs> Speaking of your family, most Gator fans know about Frankie. I want to talk about him in a second, but tell us about mm-hmm. the, the rest of your family other than uh, former Gator wide receivers. Uh, I have an older sister, uh, mom and dad. I have an older sister. She lives in Orlando. She goes to UCF for med school. Hmm. And she has two kids, but she was state champion in high school for 100 meter hurdles. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, were, were your parents big athletes as well? It sounds like there's a, a certain kind of gene running through the family here. Uh, no, just my, my dad. My, my mom didn't do any sports, but my dad did. Was he a football player? Football and track. So how quickly did he get you and Frankie started on football? Was it from an early age or did you sort of grow into it? Uh, so Frankie started playing in the sixth grade and I didn't start playing till the seventh grade. Hmm. Yeah, we kind of started late, I would say. Well, what were you doing before? There were other sports you were more interested in. Why was football sort of a late for you? Uh, so it wasn't we always like played football and knew about it. But our parents kind of believed that you know, a contact sport at such a young age could um you know allow your bones bones not to develop and lead to higher risk of injuries and things of that nature so we never like played contact football just because my mom was kind of weird about that so that's why we waited so late but we both ran track at a young age i started track like fourth grade hmm. and frankie is four or five years older than you how what, what's the number on eight. that eight years oh gosh he's been that he's been gone that long i guess i'm getting old yeah uh, yeah <laughs> So the gap kind of got closed because he redshirted. One thing that he really does is just try to help me as far as, you know, just my game and things that he may see when he's watching and just, you know, give me tips or pointers that he may see that I could work on and things of that nature just because I know he's played at this level and at the next level as well. And uh, so that's the one thing he does. I don't really think we compete much. So in terms of Frankie, I know he spent probably the, the most time with Kansas City in the NFL and then bounced around a little bit. Where is he now, and what have you learned from him about pursuing a career at the next level? Uh, he he currently lives in Gainesville now with his wife, so he's not too far from Okay. Uh, one thing that I've learned just from him is, uh, you know, just to keep working. Uh, he probably went through a lot more in college than I did with, you know, coaching changing and different receiver coaches every year, different offensive coordinators every year. So, um, you know, he just kept, you know, he stayed the course, just tried to keep working on what he could control and, uh, and just kept working, kept working, kept working. So I think that was the biggest thing for me, you know, just you can't control certain things and, uh, you shouldn't let those things that you can't control, like define you, I would say. So I think the biggest thing is just, you know, just continue to work on yourself, continue to try and get better each and every day, and just continue to work on your craft. It's funny, we recently talked to, to Marco Wilson, and he also is, you know, a famous legacy, but did not have that overlap. You were even further away from that. So while I'm sure Frankie was helping you from the outside, when you came into the program, who were some of the players you looked up to and, and helped kind of set the, the tone for you? When I first got here, uh, I listened to what well, Callaway was the person who I like kind of played behind. Mm. Uh, so I kind of, you know, would watch and learn from him just because he was, you know, a freak of nature when it came to football <laughs> talent. So you can learn a lot from him, you know, just watching. But then when it came to like other things, you know, as far as just like doing the right things and trying to be a leader of the team. Uh, when I moved off campus, I lived with uh, Jared Davis and Marcel Harris. So mm. I lived with some older guys that had kind of, you know, played a lot of ball and, you know, had a lot of experience in this league. And uh, they definitely kind of taught me the ropes and, you know, led me down the right path of, you know, how to be a leader and things of that nature. Well, and as you've become one of those leaders and now an upperclassman in your senior year, which younger players have you sort of taken under your wing and what impact do you think you've had on them? For the younger receivers, I pretty much, you know, I talk to all those guys on a day-to-day basis, you know, just making sure those guys don't get, like, overwhelmed mm-hmm. or discouraged, you know. Uh, our receiver room's pretty thick right now. You know, every freshman, when they comes in, you know, expects to play right away. And uh, those guys, need, you know, they got to develop and prepare and make sure when their time is ready that they'll be ready to go. So they've done a good job of, you know, listening and 
uh, not being discouraged and willing to take the coaching, not only from the coaches, but from the players as well. But there's a lot of young players that are probably going to be really good in the, the next two, three years. You know, uh, like Chris Bowe will probably be really, really good. Mm-hmm. Chester will probably be really good for the team. Kair, you know, all those young guys that came in and just wanted to work. You know, they didn't um, they didn't care much about if they would be playing right away or things of that nature. They just wanted to do what they could to try to help the team, you know, excel at its highest level. Mm-hmm. When it comes to that mentorship, is most of what they're looking for on the field help or is it off the field? Mostly off the field help, you know, uh, coming from home and moving somewhere completely different and being by yourself. You know, you got to try to find somebody that could, you know, guide you in the right direction and teach you the ropes of, you know, what to expect, how are things here, uh, you know, because they've never been here before. They've never been in this situation. So mm-hmm. most of the on the field stuff is kind of easy. You know, your coaches can help you with that. You know, we can coach all that stuff up out there. You know, football is still football at the end of the day. You know, cover two is still going to be covered two, whether it's high school collegiate or the NFL you could twist it up as much as you want but it'll still get to the same spot you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I think the biggest thing is just you know living environment you know knowing where things are in the city of Gainesville how to get around uh trying to meet new people and headed in the right direction and uh just making sure they don't you know do anything stupid I know you're still very early in this final season so I promise I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel old or push you out the door uh, but looking back on your career and, and thinking about some of the things we're talking about here, in what ways do you think you've grown the most, say, from day one on campus to where you are now? Uh, I think I've become more, you know, open to people. I think when I first got here, I was kind of introverted and stayed to myself. And I would kind of just sit in my room, play video games and just go to practice, but not say much. I think now I've kind of broken out of that shell and not afraid to speak up and hang out with people and you know, just spend time with my teammates. And I think that's a good thing. I think uh, I really enjoy that I did that just because I've, I've grown a bond with my teammates that I don't think I'll ever have again. And, um, you know, I'm just excited that I finally was able to break out that shell and get to know some of the guys that I know. I know there's probably some moments you're hoping are still to come that might top this list. But when you think about memories from on the field over the course of your career, are there any particular moments or games that, that really stand out to you? Hail Mary, Tyree Cleveland in 2017. <laughs> Very quick answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, probably the craziest, most special moment that I was I was a part of here. Uh, I think that was probably the biggest one. That was going to be probably really hard to top. Where were you on that play? Um, on the field running like a little dig route. <laughs> <laughs> so when something like that happens, and obviously you're not the focus of that play, how do you stay focused on what you're doing and not just looking down the field waiting to see if that happens or not? Because I feel like everyone else is looking one place except for you. You have to do your job. Right, right, right. So the initial thing was to try to, you know, get to like the 45-yard line and get down and let Eddie kick like a 60-yard field goal to win the game. Mm-hmm. So the initial plan wasn't even to kind of throw it deep to Tyree, but they kind of played some weird coverage on the back end and just let Tyree run. So when Felipe rolled out and just seen him hanging out over there, you know, he just let it rip and he was able to make the play. So you know, it was really exciting. He was able to come with the win in a dramatic fashion. <laughs> yeah, no question about that. In terms of, you talked about breaking out of your shell and, and kind of getting out and, and spending more time with the guys. When you've been on the road, when you guys have been on a road trip or just somewhere with the guys, what, what's a maybe a, a funny story you can share that stands out to you when you think about some of those off-the-field moments from your career? Uh, let me think. And you guys are always oh. pranking each other, right? You guys are always pulling stuff on each other. Yeah, they kind of mess with each other with like, um, like they'll throw like milk or whatever on each other and like Gatorade <laughs> and hot sauce and stuff. Sometimes it gets really hectic to the point where they're like running somebody's house and you know <laughs> hit them with a bottle of mayonnaise or something like that. <laughs> what's the craziest thing that you've been hit with, and what's the craziest thing that you've thrown? See, I never, I never personally got into it. You're not I doing that, okay? The, nah, I was always the bystander. I was there <laughs> and I witnessed it, but I was never on anybody's team <laughs> or a part of anything. I was always in the middle, just mutual, not picking sides. It's fair enough. I mean, you do seem like a very, very chill guy. So when you're away from football, is that pretty much your mode, just to to stay pretty low key? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I play a lot of video games, so when I'm not doing anything football, I kind of have. When I have downtime, I play video games with some of my friends that aren't here. So that's kind of our way to still like stay in contact with each other and, you know, kind of hang out. Mm-hmm. I want to bring things back to, to football for a little bit here. In terms of the, the win over Miami in week zero, 
you obviously had a huge moment in that game in the fourth quarter. Can you talk about that play, how it felt in the field when you came down with that? Because even talking about the, the Tyree Cleveland play, that's one that you're watching, you're not really you know, in the thick of. But, I mean, you're one of the biggest reasons why you won that game against Miami. So can you talk about that? Uh, you know, it was just, you know, being able to go out and make a play. Uh, Lewis Murphy was actually on the sideline for the game, and he kept saying, you know, somebody got to be the energy, somebody got to make a play, somebody got to make a play. So once they had scored and went up, you know, and they called the play, you know, Tyree actually came to me before the play and was like, you going to get the ball? And I was like, yeah, I know. I just got to be a shot catcher. <laughs> so uh, I just was able to, you know, I was able to run down the field, get open and make a play to help us score and secure the win for us. So it's just exciting to, you know, know that my teammates count on me and know my coaching staff counts on me to make those plays in a situation like that. With the expectations that, that people have for you guys, especially this year, being a top 10 team preseason, there's a lot of expectations on you guys, on the offense, on Felipe, and that gets talked about a lot out in the media, especially. How do you filter that? I mean, how do you make that productive and not something that, that becomes a negative force for you? Uh, easy. You know, you just continue to work and not really much worry about it. Um, we don't really look too much at, you know, rankings or talk about it much. Uh, all we do is try to you know try to get better and improve each and every day as a team um if one person goes out and tries to work on one thing to get better on that day we'll continue to grow as a team so i think that's the biggest thing we try to do is just not worry about you know we can't control the rankings all we can control is how we perform how we practice on a day-to-day basis so i think that's one thing that we just try to focus on is the things that we can control and not worry so much about rankings and things of that nature Mm -hmm. How strange was it playing in that week zero? I mean, you're a week early. You started camp early. Everything was shifted forward. You have this big build up to the game, and then you have a week off, which obviously only two other teams in the country had. Um, right. How did that sort of alter what your normal procedure would be like, and, and what what effect do you think that has? Uh, I don't I don't think it felt like much of an alter. We definitely started camp early, so that kind of cut like summer workouts a little bit early. But um, once we got rolling, you know, everything kind of felt the same going into game week with the it felt the same as the year before. The only thing that felt weird was the bye week after the fact. Right. But I think it was kind of good because we normally get a little uh, longer of a break, you know, after camp that we normally get before like our actual game week, which we didn't get because we played that like that next week. Exactly. So we was able to get that break on the back end, which I think was probably better just for, you know, guys getting banged up from the game being able to, you know, have more time to actually correct our mistakes that we made from the game and really refocus and shift our focus back on the things that we needed to work on. And uh, I think it was really good for us. I think it played in our favor. Um, I don't really think it was much weird. I think uh, it was just... You know, just a little different. I know Coach Mon talked a lot about the expectations for improvement now that you've had that. Where do you think those are going to happen? What have you really focused on improving? I mean, not just yourself, the offense as a whole as you go into this next week. I mean, we can't turn the ball over four times. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we had some plays that were we were efficient. We didn't have much plays on offense. I think we had like 56 total snaps. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we weren't on the field very much. But when we were on the field, you know, we got in the red zone a couple of times and turned the ball over. It didn't get any points. Uh, I think those are, you know, things that we need to work on. But I don't think they were, I mean, they're issues, but they're not, you know, that big of an issue because we were able to move the ball. We were able to make those plays when we had to make those plays. It's just those little details that we need to focus on, you know, such as catching a pitch or not clamping down on the snap uh, on the RPO, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's little things that can easily be fixed that we just need to have a little more attention to detail on it to execute those plays. When you've got the week off, like you just said, are you watching a lot of games or are you kind of stepping back? Because if you don't have a game, do you want to get away from it? How do the nah. guys feel about that? How do you feel about that? Nah, I definitely watched a lot of football this weekend. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we were we had, we got a little good break off. So, uh, you know, just trying to, you know, watch other teams that we play later down the road and see how they're doing. It's definitely always a thing, you know, in the back of people's mind, you know, just watching teams uh, and just seeing how they perform, you know, um, I'm a big SEC rooter, so if I see an SEC team playing somebody else, I obviously 
want the SEC team to win just because, you know, we're in the same conference. It definitely gets competitive within our conference, but I still feel like we have the best conference in the country. So just to see, you know, those other teams in our conference go out and beat up on other teams from other conferences, definitely exciting and lets me know that I'm going against, you know, the best of the best. Mm -hmm. So from what you saw on Saturday, what stood out to you? I mean, what, what performances impressed you? What surprised you? Um, I saw Tennessee lose. I think that kind of surprised me to Georgia State. That was surprising. The Missouri loss was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, you know, it's still football at the end of the day. Um, uh, you know, you got to be able to execute on a weekend, on a week to week basis at a high level, or, you know, it's going to be hard to win games. Winning football games is not easy. No matter who you're playing, you know, everybody can execute, especially at the collegiate level. So I think that just goes to show, you know, uh, the attention to detail and the, the difficulty it is to win at the college level is not easy, no matter who you're playing. And you know what I mean? So I think that was the biggest thing that I saw. Couple final things for you. When you're practicing, who's the mm-hmm. toughest DB? to face in practice. And this could be from any time in your career. Biggest challenge for you matching up in practice and then biggest challenge matching up in a game. Ooh, so in my career, practice-wise, I would say Tease Tabor. Hmm. Uh, he was just very instinctive. Like, he knew our, I think he knew our offense better than, like, we did. <laughs> like, seriously. What about in a game as far as a, an opponent? Uh, probably Dre Breaker from Georgia. He's pretty, he's really good. Uh, we played him. He was there last year. So mm-hmm. three years. Last year I played in the slot though, so I didn't see him. But my first two years, I played outside receiver. So I wouldn't get some my first two years. And he's a really good DB. Uh, you, he was really experienced and he knew their system really well. And you could just, you know, he was definitely ahead of the game a little bit. You could see it in the way he played and his preparation and how he made plays on other teams when you watch film on him you could tell that he studied his opponents and he knew what he was doing mm-hmm. before he even got on the field that saturday any guys you're looking forward to facing this season um not really i wouldn't say like any particular guys some couple of teams maybe mm-hmm. uh, i'm excited to go to death valley again uh, i haven't been there in two years uh, so i think that's the biggest ex- most exciting one i'm looking forward just because i haven't been there in a while and i know they have a, a really good atmosphere there mm-hmm. final thing for you so i'm not sure if you're a scary movie guy but the sequel to it comes out this week so mm-hmm. i'm asking everybody i know what's the scariest movie you've ever seen uh saw i've, I've seen them all but i think saw three was the worst okay. that's the one i remember the worst are you doing it as well or is it is that too scary for you no no clowns for you no, nah, yeah, I don't watch it. I don't mess with clowns. <laughs> no, no messing with clowns. That's fair. I, I respect that. Well, Josh, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Good luck the rest of your senior campaign, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Catch the Gators in their home opener against UT Martin Saturday night at 7.30 on ESPNU and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then be sure to come back next Thursday as we prepare you for the start of SEC play at Kentucky. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the Swamp.